0: 2009, September 30th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 6, The Geological Revolution, Deep Time and the Age of the Earth. So we've been discussing a series of, of scientific revolutions that have occurred in our way of looking at the world and looking at the universe that set the stage for the rest of this course. On the first day, we saw the scientific revolution called the Copernican Revolution that established the Earth's place in the solar system and the motions in the heavens. Yesterday we talked about the chemical evolution, chemical revolution, which set the, which is where we figured out what matter is made of. What are atoms? What are molecules? How does chemistry work? And we introduced the idea of spectroscopy, an extremely powerful tool we can use to tell the chemical composition of something without touching it or shaking it up inside of a test tube or something. It's going to be a very powerful tool we're going to use for the rest of this class. So we've come up with a couple of interesting insights so far. Not only is the Earth not a special place, it's just one planet circling the Sun, turns out that the stuff we're made of and the stuff the rest of the universe is made of, the Earth is not made of any special stuff, it's made of the same mix of atoms we see in the heavens. Yeah, different proportions, but basically the same mix of elements we find on the Earth, in the stars, and in other planets in our solar system. And so we expect to find that mix of elements in other planets, And we expect that the chemistry we understand here on the Earth should also be found under comparable conditions on other planets and nebulae and places like that. So today I want to turn to another intellectual revolution that sets the stage for our class, and this is the geological revolution, which is really going to be the discovery of deep time and the great antiquity of the Earth. It's going to be another important insight into being able to understand What the questions are we should be asking and what the inquiry should look like when we go to look for life on other worlds. So this lecture is going to explore this geological revolution, as I'm calling it, that really revealed the deep antiquity of the earth. The understanding of the earth having an age actually is is a difficult question to ask. We actually have to have a concept for a beginning of the earth. How do we come by that that conception? And there have been two ways that people have, have gone about trying to estimate the ages of the earth. They've started from an historical point of view and tried to estimate historical ages, and then they turned around and said, well, our historically determined ages consistent with what we get for physical processes that have some time scale associated with them that would allow us to set an age for the, for the Earth. We're going to talk about some of the geologic discoveries, again, primarily in the 18th and 19th centuries, that began to change our view of what the Earth's history was in fact, it even, a better way of putting it is it revealed that the Earth really does have a rich history and that history is actually readable. It's going to be very important to us for understanding the nature and origin of life on Earth. Finally, just the last piece uh, part I want to make is the last part of the class will be spent saying what is the age of the Earth physically? What is the number we're going to use as the touchstone for understanding the Earth's history and the history of life on the Earth? The answer can be stated as... The Earth is 4.54 plus or minus 0.05 billion years. We actually do know the Earth's age to within about 50 million years. It's 1% precision. And the way we measure this, and we'll discuss how that is, is by a process called radiometric age dating. And it's not just of a single rock. It's a series of different techniques which give consistent results. And we can bracket those results for the oldest Earth rocks, for meteorites, and for moon rocks to come up with a self-consistent picture of what the age of the Earth should be. We don't know it to any higher precision, and why will become clear as we go through the rest of this class. So today we want to understand, how old is the Earth? We want to ask that question. Well, first of all, in order to answer the question, what is the age of the Earth, that question has to make sense to us. We have to have a conception of a beginning. For example, what if I didn't want to know the age of the Earth? What if I wanted to know how old any one of you are? Well, there's a couple of fairly straightforward ways I could do it. I could walk up to you and demand your driver's license. Some of you carry one, and it's actually a real one. actually gives you a proper birthday. <laughs> I'm hoping that chuckle doesn't mean that some of you don't have real license plates. The other way I could do it is say, well, you know, I've been around for a little bit of a while. I kind of know what human development is like, and so I can look out at this room and say, yeah, my God, you're all so young. Okay, you're probably in your 20s. I can know something about the culture we live in. Well, people usually go to college between the age of 18 and 22, so that kind of brackets the age of a typical person here. Of course, in past years I've had one of the over 60 program students in the front row. That is obviously an exception to that rule. I could ask you questions uh, that might pin it down, like who was the first president you voted for? That might pin you down what your age is within the cultural history of, say, the United States. There's lots of different ways we could do this. But in order to do that, but doing that, you see, I've I've, I've taken a couple of different things that I know are related to to age, human development time, typical times for life events within our culture in the 21st century, Uh, when do you vote, Uh, knowing that some of you might carry age markers on you issued by the federal government or a state government or somebody, things like that. But we can step back one step further and say, well, what if I want to know the age of a building, not a person? It's a little harder. I'd have to know something about the history of the architecture on this campus. What if I wanted to know the age of Columbus? I'd have to know something about the history of the United States and settlement patterns. But what if I want to know the history of some, the age of something that's physical, like the Earth? How do I answer that question? Well, the first step is knowing to ask the question. There's two ways that people have conceived of time through history. The first of these is to conceive of time as cyclic. Cyclic time says that the Earth has no beginning or no end. All we experience are repeated circ cycles of life, death, and either rebirth or at least renewal, if you don't want to buy into the whole reincarnation thing. And different traditions saw this as a way of viewing the way in which the history of the Earth plays out. So if the Earth is cyclic, then the age is, well, what age are you talking about? The age since the beginning of the last cycle? Or how many cycles went on before that? And do we have knowledge of those? In fact, it may stretch into infinity, maybe... The age of the Earth is purely a relative idea, and there's no absolute answer. So if you conceive of cyclic time, it might actually be very hard for you to even pose the question, what is the age of the Earth? The other way we've conceived of time is what we'll call, for lack of a better word, linear time. Time runs simply in one direction, like an arrow flies through the sky. The Earth has a definite past beginning, and will have a definite future end or not as the case may be, but there's a definite beginning. And so now in that context of linear time, I can ask how old the earth is because I can say when is now, how far back do I have to go until I reach the beginning, that's the age. Just like your age is, how far back do I have to go before the calendar, before your date of your birth. There's a definite beginning in a human life and a definite ending somewhere, we don't know where it is, but we can usually point, pinpoint for most people the beginning. The same is true of the Earth, but you first have to know you can ask the question. This is not an obvious thing. Okay, on human timescales, time does in fact appear to be cyclical. right? We have the cycle of day and night. We have the cycle of the months, which are marked out by the moon phases. We have the cycle of the year, which is marked out by the run of the seasons. Okay, so winter's arrived a little early today, but in fact, we know roughly where we are within the season of cycle of seasons. On human scales, there are also cycles of, of generational cycles. When are your parents born? When were your grandparents born? There always seems to be this whole cycle of birth and death and the renewal as new generations come along and go through that cycle themselves. And so it's natural to think of cycles being the way to describe time. And a number of traditions have done this. Good examples are Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhist traditions pose it cyclical time. For example, the whole question of the age of the earth, the Buddha was actually said to have remarked that that is not a question conducive to enlightenment. It was sort of his nice way of saying, that's a stupid question, it doesn't have any meaningful answer, because he conceived of time as simply a series of cycles that one could break out of by achieving enlightenment. And asking how old the earth was was not a good way to go about doing that. The Greeks, or at least Plato, certainly envisioned cyclical time as well. They saw cyclical time on a very long cycle, about 72,000 years, a 36,000 year golden age, followed by 36,000 year age of chaos and disorder. Now we don't know if Plato really believed this for sure, and, and we certainly don't know how the heck he came up with these numbers, my guess, and that of a lot of scholars, is that, in fact, it's just a metaphor. And he was trying to argue that, well, guess which age we're in. And he was making a social commentary, not actually a scientific comment about the actual cycle of time. But again, if you have a cyclic idea of time, asking the age of the Earth is, well, not a question conducive to enlightenment. Linear time, on the other hand, is different. Linear time poses a definite beginning in the past and an eventual ending sometime out in the, in the future. We hope the distant future. A good example of a traditional way of thinking that posits linear time is actually Judaism. Since we're dealing with sort of Hinduism and Buddhism, let's continue along the religious traditions. Judaism actually provides an idea of of linear time. They posited that in the past there was a past moment of divine creation of the earth, described in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Torah, and a promised end of times depending upon which particular tradition you happen to be in. This tradition, this way of viewing time linearly was picked up by the two great religions that sprang out of the Judaic tradition, namely Christianity and Islam. This actually colors the way you view history. You view history within these traditions as a fulfillment, not in terms of growth or development. There was a past point of, of creation, there was a past fall from grace, and everything else in the world is kind of just the playing out and aging of the whole thing. So it gives a way of measuring time if you buy into the whole basic, basic picture. You can say, well, there's a past beginning. There's been a general progression of history from that beginning. So all I have to do is follow that history backwards until I finally get my way to the beginning. And that's the age of the Earth. And that's the basis for some real interesting and early estimates of the age of the Earth. So we have cyclic time for which the question virtually has no meaning. And linear time, which not only gives the question meaning, but within various traditions, because of the idea of history being wrapped up in this, suggests a way that one might go about answering the question. Well, there were lots of people who tried this, but really probably the most enduring of the efforts to come up with an historical age of the earth within the Christian tradition comes from Bishop James Usher, who lived in the the late 16th and early 17th century. He was the Archbishop of Protestant Archbishop of Armagh, Ireland. He was a classical and biblical scholar of tremendous um, integrity and tremendous skill. What Usher did, was, was really was attempting, within the intellectual context of his time, was to produce a critical chronology of all of human history. And since all of human history was conceived within the Christian tradition of the time, especially the Protestant variation on that theme, this human history would include the date of the creation of the world, creation with a big C here in this context. Now, Usher, was able, Usher is often given a kind of a bum rap because he came up with the date for the creation very precisely. He was published uh, posthumously in his Annalen Mundi, The Annals of the World, that the creation of the Earth occurred on Sunday, the 23rd of October, 4004 B.C. Now, this is a kind of a random, like how can you possibly compute it to that precision? There's an interesting bit of astronomy sneaking in there. This is the first Sunday after the autumn equinox of the year 4004 BC on the Julian calendar, which is the calendar prevalent in, the, in this particular time. Protestant England and Ireland not having adopted the Catholic or Gregorian calendar, which we use today. Now, two things that give Usher a bum rap. First of all, is there's a fellow by the name of Sir John Lightfoot who came along after Usher who added at 9 o'clock in the morning <laughs> to this, which made it even more absurdly precise than you could imagine. So people kind of make fun of Usher unfairly for John Lightfoot's addition to this. This date, by the way, is what made its way eventually into the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. So it's why it's the most enduring and familiar of all the various dates. Lots of other people did similar calculations. He's also falsely accused of basically just simply counting the begets and the begats backwards in the Book of Genesis. He did a lot more than that. James Usher was a tremendous scholar. He actually was attempting to start establishing standards for how do you piece together human history from human records? How do you recognize some records as primary and secondary? How do you piece together differing chronologies from differing people? How do you reconcile them and do so very critically? This is the best scholarship of the age. It's not exactly what we would consider to be sound scholarship in the 21st century, but for the late 16th and early 17th, it was rock solid. Usher did a really good job, but he was working under a very specific assumption. And that assumption was the same that everybody who worked on these ages did. They assumed that historical ages were assuming that human history and physical history of the earth are one and the same. That if you read off human history, you are, by definition, reading off the physical history of the earth, because they equated the creation of humanity and the start of history with the start and creation of the earth. And this is very natural. In the context of the 17th and, and 18th century, and 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, this is the prevailing cultural and religious thinking of the day. But there's one couple questions which come to mind. The first of these is many different people approach this problem in many different ways, not just Usher. Newton did it, Kepler did it. A number of astronomers, in fact, attempted to date the age of the creation following historical texts. They all seem to converge on an answer about 6,000 years ago, about 4,000. F- 4000 BC. or take a few depending on their calculation methods. Why do they always get the same method? The answer is subtle. They're using human written records to trace back history. History did not emerge until the, in the Near East until the fourth millennium BC. So if you're going to rely on written records, the written record will literally... The documentation literally runs out around 3000 BC or so, 3500 BC, middle of 4th century. Cuneiform tablets like this one shown here on the right. Early versions of clearly identifiable symbolic phonetic writing. Now, human history is not just written. There are also oral traditions, which are often recorded. After all, what you find written down is not necessarily the word of the day, It might be recounting legends or myths or stories, which we know from human experience, oral traditions roughly have a half-life, if you will, of about 500 to 1,000 years. Beyond that, if you will, history becomes myth, myth becomes legend, to uh, quote a a familiar film to some of you. So this is why we get 6,000 BC. They're following written records back. Eventually, they reach the end of written records. So what have they really measured? They've measured the history of written, recorded history of humanity. That's where where 6,000 years comes from. Now the second question that comes to mind is, is this central assumption correct? Can I equate human history with physical history? They took it as a matter of faith. But we can ask a different question. We can turn the question around. Let's say I decide I want an independent check on my historical ages then what I should do is go out and look for physical ways to measure the age of the Earth that do not make any reference to human history at all. If human history and physical history are one and the same, those two dates will agree to within our measurement precision. I will have two independent ways of reaching the same answer, if they are correct. So a different way of asking the question is, do you get the same answers for the age of the Earth if you consider physical ages, physical processes, separate from human history? And that's what we mean by physical age. I'm not going to make reference to people at all. I'm going to see if I get the same answer if I don't need to make that assumption, if I relax the assumption. And that's a sort of test that would give you confidence that a historical age is, in fact, correct. One of the first people who actually did this in a systematic way was Edmund Halley. Edmund Halley was a, a great ast- and un- very much underappreciated astronomer and scientist of Um, 17th and 18th century England. He is a contemporary of Isaac Newton. It was Edmund Halley, in fact, who insisted, who basically pestered Newton endlessly to publish his Principia Mathematica, which laid out his three laws of motion and law of gravity that gave birth to modern physics. Newton really didn't want to publish it because he basically didn't seem to feel it was necessary. He already figured out the answer. But Halley pushed him to do it and paid for the Principia out of his own pocket. Halley was also engaged in a lot of other investigations in what was then referred to as natural philosophy or natural history. And he began to ask the question of, how can we estimate the physical age of the Earth? Now, he had a different question in mind. He wanted to see if you could prove that the Earth was not infinitely old, as was suggested by some people at the time. So he did the following thought problem. He said, let's say that the ocean started out as pure, fresh water. After all, rainfall coming down is pretty close to pure, as pure water as you're going to get without using distillation processes. That water runs down over the rocks and through streams and fills up the ocean basins. Let's say that at the very beginning of the Earth, the oceans were completely pure water. But over much time of flowing over rocks, dissolving out salts, eventually the salinity level will begin to rise in the ocean, in the oceans. And you slowly but sur- surely build up saltwater oceans. Now, he worked out what the rates of salinity should be, salinization should be, what the rates of dissolution of, of mineral salts into water should be in river basins. And he said, look, if the Earth was only a few thousand years old, the oceans are so big and the volume of river water flowing down is sufficiently small, in a few thousand years, you'd barely dent the salinity of the ocean. You're, you're sprinkling a few grains of salt into an event- immense pool. It's going to take you a while to bring it up to saltwater kind of... Kind of uh, salinities. Similarly, if you go to the other extreme and say the earth is infinitely old, then the water in the ocean should be completely saturated with salts. It should be like the Great Salt Lake or the Dead Sea. So full of salts that you can't even sink into it. You practically float on the surface. Clearly, the answer is somewhere between these two. It's old enough that the oceans are saline, but not so old that it's completely saturated and you couldn't put any more salt in the water if you wanted to. And so from that, he said that the Earth must be at least many thousands of, tens of thousands of years old to achieve the salinity by this process. Now, there's a lot to argue with this way of doing it. You could say, well, but is that the way the oceans got their salinity? Did they maybe start out a little bit saline? The answer is, yeah, they probably did, or maybe something else is going on, but it's an interesting way of doing the estimate. Right? He's taking an observed physical phenomenon, He's taking another phenomenon which allows change in, in, in that phenomenon, in this case change in the, in the salt content of water, and he's got a time scale associated with it. How long does it take to accumulate salt in the oceans? The Irish uh, geologist John Jolie in the 1990s revisited Halley's calculation using more modern estimates and said that if you started out with freshwater oceans and really got good estimates of both saltwater dissolution and and river volumes, now you knew about the Amazon and places like that, then it would take 80 to 100 million years for the oceans to go from freshwater to saline. Now, there are other processes involved. Salt, once you put it in water, can precipitate out and fall out of solution and saline can, salinity can drop. There's lots of other physical processes on here, but it shows a very long time scale that even Halley realized. Halley's intent was to show the Earth was not infinitely old, but he opened the door to the idea that, the, that a physical estimate made it very old indeed. Another person who worked on this question, coming after Halley and Newton, was Georges-Louis Leclerc, often known as the Comte de Buffon. He was a French nobleman who was also one of the best um, natural, scien- na- natural philosophers, a, a, mo- a proto-scientist, geologist, and all-around very interesting fellow. He decided to look at a different physical time scale involved with the age of the Earth. He asked the question, imagine that the Earth formed by coagulation of meteorites and comets, a la Newton. That initially, the Earth should be in a molten state, and the Earth is made most of silicates and iron, So how long would it take you to get from an initially molten state to the kind of cool ground we have now? So he did this not by simply thought experiments, but he did experiments with iron spheres. He took an iron sphere, heated it up in a forge, and then would watch how long it took iron spheres heated to a certain temperature just below the melting point, just to the point where they were starting to get a little mushy but didn't fall apart into liquid. How long does it take to cool so you could touch them? His own hands were somewhat uh, thorny from all of his work in metallurgy, so there's a comment about how the fact that various young women who were visitors to his estate were actually... He preferred them for the temperature test because their hands were so delicate. He was a Frenchman all the way around. He then took these iron spheres, and knowing something about the way things cool off, scaled up to the size of the Earth, and said, how long would an iron sphere the size of the Earth take to cool off from just a molten state down to the temperature we see today? And his various estimates got him to an age of about 75,000 years. So the Earth had to be at least 75,000 years old if if its initial state was molten. Now it turns out that Buffon did a pretty good job, but he missed an awful lot of the problem. And Lord Kelvin, the same William Thompson who gave us the Kelvin temperature scale, revisited this question in the 1890s. And said that if you actually went into a molten state, the earth is not pure iron, it's silicate rocks. There's internal sources of heat. You've got to play the game a little bit. And he revised an estimate between 20 and 400 million years. So when you really do the calculation right, I mean, we're going to spot Buffon for having a good idea, but, you know, give him a break. He's in the 18th century. He doesn't, you know, Lord Kelvin had almost 200 years of physics on him at this point. He got, again, a very long time. So even by the end of the middle of the 18th, starting into the 19th century, it became fairly clear that physical estimates of the age of the earth were all giving very, very much larger numbers than human history. So much larger that people were getting very uncomfortable with it. In fact, Buffon, living in Catholic uh, France, was accused of impiety for having estimated an age of the earth greater than 6,000 years. So sometimes ideas have to wait for their time to come. There were other work, uh, there are other forces at work here, which were starting to investigate the fact that the Earth actually had a history. We don't usually think of the Earth as having a history. It's got a past. It kind of decays and erodes to the present. And so the vision was that the Earth was sort of made, and then it's kind of just been going to hell and running down. Ever. It's getting kind of run down ever since because there's not any new Earth being made. It all kind of erodes into the oceans. The oceans get saline people began to realize that maybe that wasn't true. The first of the people who really began to start this idea that the Earth has not only a history but a very complex history with very active forces at works was James Hutton. James Hutton was a, one of the fathers of modern geology living in the, in the 18th century, described repeated cycles of uplift and erosion appearing in the geological history of the land. And he described this in a marvelous book in 1795 called The Theory of the Earth. He introduced into geology the concept of repair, the fact that terrain can in fact be repaved. Volcanism makes new land, if you will. Sediments lay down new soil. The previous idea was just that you simply started out as you were and kind of eroded down from there. He concluded from these studies of this process of erosion, uplift, and repair of the land, this continual cycling of, of Earth's history, that the Earth must be at least many millions of years old for this to have played out to give us the observed geological landforms that we see. But he also, in addition to stating that one could see that the Earth had a deep history, made a second assertion, which was to cause a little bit of trouble. He said that these cycles of decay and repair would have the effect of erasing much of that history, so that you might not be able to learn the true age of the Earth, because much of that history would have been erased by constant rebuilding. Just like if you came here to Ohio State and you look at all the buildings around here, you might see some buildings being torn down, some new buildings being built up, and some like this one, which richly deserved to be torn down but are old and here. You would miss the fact that there may have been two or three generations of buildings on this site that in the process of building new buildings have been eradicated from the history. So your snapshot here and now is incomplete. That turns out to be an extreme view. It turns out that a lot of that history is in fact still preserved because complete destruction does not occur over the entire planet. You have to be somewhat careful in this. Now here's how Hutton put it together. Here was the key insight. Hutton was from, from Scotland and up near Jedburgh, Scotland, or Jedburgh, Scotland, he noticed that first of all most of England is made up of marine sediments, layers of clays and limestone and things like that laid down layer after layer, year after year, century after century. If these sediments were simply being laid down constantly from the beginning to the end, I would expect that digging into the earth would be like digging into a gigantic layer cake. I would just keep hitting layer after layer. But in a road cut outside Jedborough, what he found was you got down a certain distance and all of a sudden you saw sedimentary layers which were tilted on their side. In fact, they were downright vertical. This is a picture from Hutton's theory of the earth here in 1795 and the actual picture of that very same area that he was thinking of. This sudden change in the ordering with a little bit of junk in between is called a Hutton Hutton Unconformity. And it turns out these things are all over the place. Here's another one out near Sicker Point in Scotland. We see older rock on the top. Endless erosion by ocean waves has removed the surrounding stuff, and you see the layers of ancient sediment here on top, but they're built on top of a lower piece of sediment that was upthrust and jumbled and then new sediments began to be layered down on top of that. Here were the cycles of sedimentation, uplift and destruction, and then new layers coming on top, and then other layers coming up from below those, and so on and so forth through history. The cycle of uplift, sedimentation, erosion. Uplift, sedimentation, erosion. A colleague of his, a man by the name of of James Playfair, visited uh, this particular point, Sicker Point, with... um, with Hutton at one point, And notice that when he began to realize that what he was seeing was the ancient history of the Earth, the Earth was very much older, he was very discomforted by this because he felt he was standing looking into a deep abyss of time. People were beginning to now read the history of the land and seeing that the land was telling us the Earth was very, very old, at least millions of years old. Following up on Hutton was the other m- major figure in, in the development of modern geology, Charles Lyell. He introduced, really, the the procedure of quantitative stratigraphy into measuring the Earth's history. Strata of different rocks moving vertically into the ground, separating the various geological ages, which are separated by these periods of sedimentation and uplift that were seen by Hutton. But he said, in fact, that Hutton was wrong. The geological record is not erased. In fact, the traces of that record are still there. You just have to be careful about how you read them And he noticed there were changes in the fossil in different layers. Different layers would have certain kinds of shells. Other marine sediments would have different marine life forming those sedimentary layers. And if you went to different places in the world, you could recognize which layer corresponded to a similar layer elsewhere in the world by which fossils appeared in them. And so old rocks, you know, an old rock looks like a young rock. But the fact that you've got life, which shows tremendous variation with time. There are species in the past that do not exist in the present and vice versa. So you can use the presence of the fossils in the rock to help you get an idea of which one came before the other. This is a very interesting idea. No one really understood how that worked, but that was pretty much what Lyell's point was. He wrote a book called Principles of Geology, which went through about 15, 20 editions. It was extremely influential, and it was a copy of Lyell's Principles of Geology that was taken on board the HMS Beagle by a young scientist by the name of Charles Darwin when he began his journey around the world in the 1800s. And it was in those long sea voyages that Darwin read this and started realizing that the Earth had a deep history, and that got him to thinking about the whole question of how you read the history of the Earth And his interest was in the history of animal life upon the earth. So it was immensely influential. Well, how do we actually measure the age of a rock? I mean, you can play the game with fossils, but what if there aren't any fossils around? What if the rock is volcanic rock, which um, is basically going to destroy any fossils that might be in the area when those layers are laid down? That only works for sediments. How do we measure the age of any rock? we're going to jump ahead and skip a whole bunch of history right into the 20th century. In fact, the 21st century. What we need is a clock. We need a reliable clock. Fossil record's pretty good, but it's really hard to interpret, and hard to interpret precisely. You can get the relative age, yeah, that place is older than that, and you might have some idea of how much older, but you'd like an independent check on that. Well, the way we can do that, we saw yesterday, towards the end of the lecture on matter. Not all atoms are stable. Some of the atoms have too many or too few neutrons in their nucleus, and those isotopes of those elements are radioactively unstable. And every now and then, one of them suddenly makes a change and becomes a different form of new element emitting radioactive particles, being an electron, maybe emitting some gamma rays or X-rays, but undergoes a radioactive decay. For example, if we look at zircons, zirconium oxides, with silicon in them, When they form in crystallization, uranium turns out to have a chemical affinity for the compounds that are inside of zirconium. So when the chemicals are sort of going around in the molten soup and beginning to crystallize, the chemistry allows uranium to get stuck inside the crystal lattice. You almost never form pure mineral crystals out of rock. There's always going to be some junk in them. But what junk gets into that crystal has to be chemically likely to bond with the stuff in it. Remember, not all atoms bond with all other atoms. But uranium bonds with the stuff in in zircons. So when you make a zircon, you can have uranium locked up inside, a so-called uranium inclusion, little chunks of uranium inside the crystal. Uranium is unstable. Uranium has two different isotopic forms that we're interested in. Uranium-235 is the stuff we don't want Iran to be making, for example, and uranium-238 is another. Both of these are naturally occurring. When they decay, they decay through a chain of radioactive decay, ending up finally in stable isotopes of lead. In the case of uranium-238, the chain leads to uh, lead-206. In the case of uranium-235, it leads to lead-207, a lead atom with one more neutron than lead-206. The half-lives are very long. Uranium-238 to 206 lead chain takes 4.47 billion years of half-life. If you had a rock full of of uranium-238, it would take 4.5 billion years in round numbers for half of it to decay away. Uranium-235 is a bit more lively stuff. It takes about 700 million years for a half-life to decay. Now, the lead isotopes are stable, so once you make them, that's the end of the chain, no more decay. The thing is, while zircons can take up uranium... Lead is of a different chemical element, is not taken up by zircons. In fact, lead is rejected and never locked into a natural zircon. You can make zircons artificially in the lab to your heart's content. In the presence of as much lead as you want, you will never lock lead atoms into into the crystalline lattice. So zircons start out with zero lead content. It's what's called chemical rejection formation. So you make one of these zircons and you've got some uranium locked away inside of it, in this little picture here on the right. Over time, the, radi- the, the uranium will begin to decay and turn into lead. So the uranium and the uranium-238 230, and 235 converts itself into lead-206 and 207, respectively. Because the uranium's trapped inside the crystal, the daughter products of that decay, the lead, are also trapped in the crystal. There's no way for lead to get in from the outside or lead from the inside to get out. What this means is not only do you build up lead over time inside of a zircon where lead should not be, but over time the proportion of the isotopes of lead will actually begin to change, and that's the key. We have not one decay going on, but two. So here's the deal. Let's say you start out with 200 and thir- 100 atoms of uranium-235 inside of the crystal, and you let them decay. As uranium decays, it turns into lead-207. Five half life's labor, Five half-lives later, your 100 atoms of uranium-235 are now down to five, three atoms of uranium-235, and the other 97 atoms have got to the end of their chain of two, lead-207. So it doesn't take very long. Five half-lives away, you suddenly change almost all of your uranium into lead. The 238 to 206 uranium-to-206 to lead channel works at a different rate. So you start out four and a half billion years ago with a crystal containing uranium. And here's your clock. And I've drawn those little little hourglasses to sort of make the point. You start the clock, there's no lead because lead is excluded, but uranium is included. Now you go today, four and a half billion years later, half of your uranium-238's gone because that's one half-life of uranium-238, but only 1.2% of the uranium-235 is left because that's about six and a half half half-lives. So you've doubled and redoubled and redoubled six times. You doubled down six times on the the, uh, half-life. So you have a little bit of lead 206 and a whole bunch of lead 207. So the hourglasses drain at different rates. By tracking these two rates and measuring the proportion of lead isotopes trapped inside the zircon, you take the zircon, smash it up, and blow the results into a mass spectrometer and count the lead atoms, literally counting single lead atoms. I can read the age of that zircon off immediately. It's an extremely accurate method called the uranium-lead radio ra- ra- radiometric clock. Yes, sir? Question on the front? Here's an example of how it's done. There's something here, and I won't go with the details of this. This is a, a particular zircon crystal set found in the Flint's belt, which is a geologic formation in Zimbabwe. And they look at the ratio of the lead-206 to uranium-238 isotope on the vertical axis and 207 led to uranium-235 on the x-axis, and they find a place where those two different decay rates cross. This curve here is basically the predicted timeline, and it crosses up here at about 2.6 billion years. So this zircons taken from the Funtz Belt were crystallized 2.6 billion years ago, and that's the age of the rock. That's the age of the rock that those zircons are contained in. So this uranium lead radiometric data is an extremely powerful method. It's really precise. It's remarkably precise. In fact, it's been greatly refined with uh, advances in mass spectroscopy. We can get down to measuring extremely tiny amounts. We can count individual atoms now. That's the level of technology we've achieved. We can count individual atoms within a sample. It's an amazing thing. The uranium lead method now gives ages with a uh, margin of error as low as 2 million years in a 2.5 billion year old crystal. That's one part in a thousand. That's pretty darn good for a radioactive decay process. And radioactive decay is important because, like I said yesterday, an atomic nucleus doesn't care where it is. It's going to decay when it's time for it to decay because that's determined by the forces on the nuclear scale. That uranium atom could be in a moon rock, an earth rock, a zircon, in the water, in the air, out in space, it's got exactly the same half-life. We've never been able to change the half-life of any element. It's always the same because it's determined by forces on the nuclear scale. Whether that atom gets locked into a zircon is a chemical scale process which occurs on the scale of atoms and molecules, which is a 15 orders of magnitude larger scale. Remember, atoms are... One part in ten to the fifteen empty space, all the actions in that nucleus, the chemistry is action is on the big scales. That's how we have confidence in these methods. But we don't just use one method. There's a lot of other methods. There's a method that involves the uh, element one hundred forty five forty seven samarium decaying to one forty three neodymium with a half life of one hundred and six billion years. That's a long clock. Rubidium to strontium is another one, got a half-life about 50 billion years. Again, they come in different crystals. There's different chemistries for the different atoms, so you would get some... These are things where the crystals will, say, exclude strontium or exclude neodymium chemically, but take up rubidium or samarium. A really cool one with a 1.3 billion year half-life, which is good down to about 100 million years or less, is potassium-40 to argon-40. Potassium is really common. If you pick up any piece of glass has got potassium or soda glass, has got radioactive potassium-40 in it. In fact, we have to buy special non-radioactive glasses for some of our instruments to avoid this effect. It turns into argon. Argon is a noble gas. It doesn't react chemically with anything. So there's no way for argon to get into a crystal. It it doesn't react with anything. So if you crack open a crystal and poof, you get a little poof of argon... It's from the radioactive decay of the potassium inside there. You count the argon atoms, you count the potassium atoms, read the clock. Very simple, very straightforward. Well, okay, it's not that simple. There's a couple of details, and it requires an awful lot of exceedingly careful technique to avoid contamination and other problems. Now, radiometric dating does not tell you the age of the atoms that make up the rock. It tells you the time since that rock solidified. So, for example, when a mineral solidifies out of, say, molten magma, the chemically allowed elements, like potassium or uranium, depending on the mineral, are locked into the crystal lattice when it crystallizes from liquid to solid form. The chemically rejected elements, the argon and the lead, are locked out. Once you form the crystal, the crystal forms a sealed case. You can't get lead in from the outside, or argon can't seep in from the outside. Neither can uranium or potassium seep out. You can destroy the crystal, and the way you destroy it is you melt it again. Okay, so the daughter products, once you radioactively decay, once that uranium locked in the crystal lattice goes, Poof, oh, I'm lead now, that lead's still surrounded by the zircon lattice, and it can't get out. But if I have a volcano go off or some volcanic event that melts the rock, then I release all those atoms, I release all those included elements, and I reset the clock because when the crystal reforms, it rejects the lead, grabs the uranium, and I get a fresh zircon. So it's like a stopwatch. I can reset it, and I reset it by melting. So here's the problem with using the radioactive clock to measure the age of the Earth it only measures the age of that rock since that rock formed. So the challenge becomes, to find the oldest age of the earth, I've got to find the oldest rock. like if I wanted to know the age of the OSU campus by looking at buildings, I've got to go find the oldest building. Eventually, I'm going to reach a point where I no longer find an older building And I've at least understood, well, if not the age of the OSU campus, maybe the age of the last major round of construction where everything was torn down. So you can see how kind of it works that way. I've got to find the oldest rock, but the problem is the Earth is very geologically active. Most of the Earth's crust is about 100 million years old or less. For example, in the front range of the Rockies were created about 60 million years ago. The rocks around this area are pretty young. Again, 100 million years is the average age. So we need to find places where you know most of the surface rocks have been melted and solidified many times. The clock is run, Reset, recrystallize, start again, up, oh, you're melted, reset, start again, over and over again. I can find out when the last phase of, of last time that rock was molten is what the age measures. So I have to go looking through the world for older and older and older rocks, and eventually, I'm going to run out of, of older, of something that's just, I'm just run, running out of age. I'll never find a rock older than a certain amount, and that tells me I've gone off the cliff. I've found that zero point. So where do these rocks live? Well, the oldest living, the oldest living, excuse me, the oldest found zircons in the world come from the Jack Hills of Western Australia, out sort of towards Perth, on the western coast of Australia. Those zircons have now been reliably measured to 4.4 billion years old with a, with a margin of error somewhere around 4 or 5 million years. So it's a very tight constraint on the age of those zircons. The largest thing that... Not, not, we're talking about single mineral crystals. The rock that those crystals were in has long since been destroyed by erosion, but the zircons are tough and the zircons remain. Zircons don't erode. You can crush them, you can melt them, but they don't erode in water. The largest, the oldest known rock that's still a rock, which is kind of a composite of stuff, there's two candidates. The acasic gneiss, which is up in northwestern territories of Canada, has been definitively dated by contained zircons at four point zero three billion years. A new candidate has been found in Canada near Hudson's Bay just a couple months ago with an age of around four point two eight billion years. In Greenland, there's a place called the Isua Greenstone Belt, which has been definitively dated to 4, 3.8 billion years. That's an interesting number we're going to see later in the class, to so kind of filed away in the back of your head there. So when we put all these numbers together, what do we get? Well, the oldest earth rocks set, the earth has to be at least that old. Now, if the Earth was composed of meteorites, then I might know a little bit further down the line, because the Earth might have started out molten, so that's the age of when the Earth was last fully molten. I look at meteoritic rocks, and they're slightly older, not surprisingly, because they weren't, haven't been molten throughout their history. And I can look at moon rocks, because the moon probably formed around the same time of the Earth. So even though I have high precision, I can bracket the ages to a precision of about 1%, up from a tenth of a percent for the techniques, and I get an age of 4.54 billion plus or minus 0.05 billion years. A margin of error of 50 million years in the age of the Earth. That's a tremendous number. It firmly establishes the deep antiquity of the Earth. This deep antiquity tells me an important lesson. It means that phenomena on Earth that need time to play out have literally all the time in the world. So it's another piece of the puzzle of understanding the question of life in other worlds. If I now depend upon processes that take time, planets have a lot of time on their hands, or could, in principle. And it's another piece that we need to do before we can make the effort to answer the question, are we alone? Any questions? Yes, sir. That's that's an estimate based on a combination of when the Earth was last molten and what the oldest meteorites are. It's somewhere in this bracket was when the Earth formed. And it is a, a margin of error of about 100 million years is what we thought was the formation period. Yes, sir? In about. So you, is that, you're saying the rocks in the moon and rocks on the Earth and the same moon? Roughly, in, in the oldest terrains, are of comparable age to within the uncertainties. Yes, sir? Are those like uh, rocks on the surface or were those like core sands that go down? On the moon, it was primarily uh, surface rock, and core samples didn't go down very deep. On the Earth, it's, again, mostly surface rocks or deep mines. Good questions. All right, we'll see you all tomorrow.